listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. The music you're listening to is Cello by Mr. Carnivore, an indie rock band out of Cleveland, Ohio. Mr. Carnivore is our featured musical artist this week, so stick around till the end of the podcast and we'll tell you a little bit more about the band and let you finish the whole song. Right now, throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a really strange story to explore tonight. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. And buckle up, Steve. We've got a long journey ahead. Oh, yeah? Where are you taking us? Well, what if I told you a Barberton, Ohio family just might be the legal owner of the corpse of John Wilkes Booth. Oh, no way. Wait, the guy who assassinated Abraham Lincoln? That John Wilkes Booth? What in the same? How is that even possible? Well, that's where the journey comes in. So you're going to have to be patient. I need to get you from the end of the Civil War to modern-day Barberton. But don't worry, it's a very fun ride. And when we're done... I think you're going to see how this little piece of American history becomes a genuine Ohio mystery. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. What's that? Well, you said it's a journey, and we're starting out at the end of the Civil War, so I'm assuming I'm not buckling into any family minivan. (laughs) Okay, good point. Saddle up. Six Zippo Tyrannus. First, let's not assume everyone remembers their history. You you know that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Yes. Okay, there's, there's a trick to that. I mean, there's a very logical reason adults look dumb next to these youngsters. I mean, they're learning all this stuff right at that moment. So right. all these remote facts are going to be really fresh to them. But you know what? Give them 30 years and they're going to dumb down like the rest of us. <laughs> so let's cut everyone a break and allow for the fact that time has eroded our memories of what happened in 1865. Um, so let's review quickly. It's April of 1865. It's the end of the Civil War. The South has just surrendered to the North. And five days later, on April 14, President Abraham Lincoln is planning a night out with his wife. The, the couple's going to go to the Ford's Theater uh, in Washington, D.C. to see a performance of... American Cousin? My our American, American Cousin. That's right. Cousin. That's right. Okay, yes. maybe you are smarter than a fifth I grader. love this type of history stuff. <laughs> As a matter of fact, um, he's uh, only going to have... Uh, back then, he was only guarded by one police officer. And if I, you know, if I had some loser friends who uh, loved history as much as me, I'd love to tell the story that uh, John Wilkes Booth is kind of like the Luke Wilson... His brother was Owen Wilson. He was a very famous actor, what considered one of the greatest actors ever. And, you know, John Wilkes Booth, he was considered a pretty good actor, too. But, again, he was the Luke Wilson of the family. He was in the shadow of his brother. That's right. He you was doing what? movies just, like, like Legally Blonde. Something. Oh, really? You didn't I, I know did, that? I did. I knew he had a brother, Edwin Booth. I didn't know that he was in yes. his brother's shadow. Yes, he was in his brother's shadow. That's I right. That. Clearly, he needed to stand out, and he found a way, so... <laughs> Yeah, uh, so let me switch 
to the Cliff Notes version here because our story is not about the assassination, but but you need to understand a little bit of it. So Booth, he's a pretty well-known actor uh, of the day. He steals into the president's box at the theater, fires a single shot from a Derringer into the back of Lincoln's head. Then he dramatically leaps from the box onto the stage, breaking his leg in the effort. And he manages to hobble out of the back door of the theater to a waiting horse, and he races off. Did you ever hear the story of the coincidence between him and the police officer who was guarding Abraham Lincoln? Uh, no. So uh, during intermission, by the way, this, this police officer who was guarding uh, Abraham Lincoln, it, it was very comical, his history. He was very, very spotty. Uh, he fell asleep in a you know, train car when he was supposed to be on duty, uh, using foul language, uh, visiting the, you know, the, the women houses of the, you know, the, the place. Brothels. He's brought... <laughs> He was brought in front of boards many times, you know, and he was, he was like, "Well, the, you know, the lady who was running it called me over," Just, <laughs> and he kept getting getting out. Well, during intermission, he decided to go down to the saloon, have some drinks, and who uh, who was also in that bar at the same time, just leaving. Booth. John Wilkes Booth was leaving. Oh my gosh! And when he passes the chair where the police officer is supposed to be sitting, of course, it's empty. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh, thus is born the Secret Service. That's right. That's how the Secret Service came to be, that you had a guy getting drunk that was supposed to be guarded. Wow, I did not yes. know that. Thank you for that delightful You're little welcome. piece of history. Luke Wilson. Uh, so, <laughs> a little modern uh, twist there. Right. Uh, anyway, okay, so Abraham Lincoln dies, and there, a huge manhunt begins. Uh, and many of these searchers are spurred on by a $20,000 reward. Yeah, that's really back big, then. Yes. Yeah. And 12 days later, on April 26, federal troops corner two men in a tobacco barn near Frederick, Fredericksburg, Virginia. And it's believed that one of the men inside is Booth, and the other is a conspirator whose last name is Harold. And when the men refuse to surrender, the troops set the barn on fire. And Harold is captured, but the other man is shot in the neck. And he's dragged from the flames, and he dies right there in the field. Now, right away, his identity, the guy who's died in the field, his identity is going to be called into question. There, According to some reports, so there were two witnesses uh, right there at the site who said the guy who died in the field had red hair. And Booth had this lush, black, curly hair and would not have been mistaken for redhead. According to some reports, Harold, the, the conspirator that was captured and not okay. shot, when he was struggling with his captors, he was saying, who is that man in the barn with me? He told me his name was Boyd. Hmm. So right away, he's throwing doubt onto who the second guy is. Right. Um, another twist, and this was recounted in the 1944 issue of Harper's, Booth's own physician who had once operated on his neck, so should have been very familiar with what his face looked like, he was called to examine the body the day after the, the shooting at the barn. Do we know what happened to his neck? Um, uh, no. Okay. No. Okay. No. But it's important to know that he was operated on on his neck because that's going to be important later, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, so he's called to examine Booth, and he's stunned to find no resemblance to Booth. He even calls the Surgeon General personally and says... I don't think you got the right guy. This is not the guy I know as John Wilkes Booth. 
So anyway, the, the body is buried very quickly on the grounds of a federal penitentiary, and it will take four years for Booth's family to convince the government to turn the body over. And when they did, it was on the condition that the body be buried in an unmarked grave in the family plot in Baltimore. So we're talking about the body that has not been positively identified. Well, they've positively identified it. The government has. Okay. And they've already announced that it's Booth. But nobody else has seen this body except this physician who says it's not him. Okay. And, you know, and, you know embalming was not common at that time. You had to have a reason to want to embalm somebody. And, you know, there's a good chance this body... I have no idea what the condition was. So you bring this body up four years later and you tell the family, here's your loved one. How are they going to identify Right. It? No, you know, there's going to be nothing there. Yeah. So, and finally, there was one other clue. Many years later, Blanche Booth, she was the niece of John Wilkes Booth, she told people that Booth had secretly met with her mother a year after the assassination. So there's a lot of rumors out there that maybe the guy that was killed and buried wasn't Booth. Okay. So now let's, we're going to move along uh, 11 years later to 1877. And I'm going to take you to Granbury, Texas. Okay. Where lawyer Finnis Bates. These are some great names. Finnis Bates. I love these names. He's been summoned to the deathbed of an acquaintance by the name of John St. Helen. Now, St. Helen is a local storekeeper. And he always stood out to Bates, Bates would say later, because he was indescribably handsome. He had thick black hair and a mustache. He was polished, he had good grammar, he was educated. He was so unlike the other residents of this frontier town, which Bates would describe as uncouth. And Bates would say, you know, while other local men would be telling body jokes and drinking a lot, this John St. Helen, he could be found reciting Macbeth or Richard Hmm. III, that he could discourse for hours on Roman history, and that he saw every local play that came to town and befriended the members of the wandering acting troops. Interesting. It is. And so Bates, he enters the bedroom of St. Helen. There's a doctor there. He informs him that St. Helen is dying and wishes to speak with him alone. So the doctor takes his leave, and Bates sits next to the guy who begins to speak in a weak, whispered tone, and he says, My name is John Wilkes Booth. Now, that's why I said this was interesting, because John Wilkes Booth's father was a Shakespearean actor. Well, and Booth himself was an actor. Yes, So, I mean, they come from a long line of of actors. Correct. And everything that this guy, you know, later would learn about Booth, it's like, this fits. Right. This Finnis Bates, he's a smart guy. Actually, I should probably tell you some trivia here. Finnis Bates is the grandpa to actress Kathy Bates. Oh, And wow. he also went on to become Attorney General of Tennessee. Oh. So this, this is a smart guy. Yeah. You know, and by the time this story is done, he's absolutely convinced that this guy is John Wilkes Booth. All right. So anyway, he's, he says he's John Wilkes Booth, that he assassinated President Lincoln. And you know, that's a, quite a declaration, but that's not all. He goes on to say that high-placed officials in Washington were in on the assassination plot, that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton himself helped coordinate Booth's getaway, 
and that the man that was shot and killed in the tobacco barn was an innocent that had been passed off as Booth so the posse could collect the $20,000 reward and the government could close the case. Huh. So meanwhile, St. Helen, you know, he drifts to the relative safety of the Wild West where nobody knows him and using various aliases. Now, after St. Helen gives this deathbed confession, uh, he recovers. He doesn't die. And so not surprisingly, perhaps regretting his premature confession, he skips town. And he adopts another alias. And lawyer Finnis Bates, he doesn't hear of him again until 1903. Okay. So in 1903, Bates has moved from Texas to Memphis, Tennessee. And he's reading his local newspaper. And there's a story about a man named David George who had locked himself in an Enid, Oklahoma hotel room and killed himself by ingesting arsenic, but not before he had given a confession to a local minister claiming to be John Wilkes Booth. And there's a picture of David George in this newspaper, and Bates recognizes him as John St. Helen. (laughs) So... Bates is like, I got to check this out personally. He takes himself to Enid and finds the embalmed body of David George, a.k.a. John St. Helen, a.k.a. John Wilkes Booth, possibly. And the body is at the W.B. Penniman Mortuary and Furniture Store. Oh, furniture store. That's where I like to be embalmed. Well, you know what? If you were embalmed back in the the 1800s, you would have been embalmed at a furniture store. Can you guess why? I'm going to guess they had the chemicals. Well, there's a natural evolution of this job here, and that's because furniture is carpentry, and if you need a casket, you go to a cabinet maker. I see. Now, they were not funeral homes and all of this very... Um, you know, the system that we have today of, of burial. I mean, people died. They were laid out in their homes. They got a cabinet maker to put a pine box together, and you buried them in the backyard. You know what? Just to go, just to, you know, relive the past. When you uh, pass away, I'm going to send you to Value City Furniture. Well, you know, they might be shocked because I'm not sure they practice that anymore. And the county government might have some, some issues with sure. that, too. But... Um, so then carpenters, they learned how to embalm the dead when embalming became available. And this Peniman guy, uh, as soon as he hears the dead guy on his table had confessed to being John Wilkes Booth, he's like, I'm embalming this guy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the best embalming job of my life. And he did. And he created a mummy. So this body is preserved for all time. Now, the Bates, best of his life. Oh, yeah. Great Frankenstein over here. So Bates, he tries to get custody of the body. It's unclaimed, after all. And, um, but, but it's become a local tourist attraction. Enid and this Peniman uh, furniture maker, they don't want to give it up. This body is dressed in a suit. It's sitting in a chair in the furniture store's front parlor. What? It's, he's popped glass eyes into its head, and he's got these eyes staring in a newspaper that's unfolded on his lap the best of his life so tourists are coming in and seeing it they're not going to give that up so you know Bates he leaves disappointed um, but he's not done he's just so intrigued by the story and four years later um, after 
his own personal research, talking to lots of people who knew John Wilkes Booth and his family, he publishes a book, and he calls it The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth, Written for the Correction of History. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, he, he spent the rest of his life trying to convince people that this was John Wilkes Booth. And after the book is published, he is given custody of the cadaver. The town of Enid had seen it enough, and they were ready to give it up. Huh. And, and so it came into to Bates' um, possession finally. Now, you've got to, I've got to go through the chain of custody here because this is where we make the transition from American history to Ohio mystery. All okay? right. So Bates dies in 1923, and his widow sells the mummy, which has pretty much been sitting in the garage for a couple of decades, for $1,000 to William Evans. That's a pretty good amount of money. That's pretty good. And this guy is called the Carnival King of the Southwest. Oh, I knew that was. I knew oh, something yeah. like this was Here coming. Here we go. The freak show is yes. going to continue. All right. Now, I got to tell you, mummies are not necessarily a good thing to have custody of. Okay. Okay. If Tutankhamun is any example, yes. they tend to come with curses. Right. Okay. And according to a History Channel story, over the next two decades, the Booth mummy gets a reputation for just wreaking havoc on its owners. Nearly every showman who exhibits this body goes into financial ruin. One reportedly is killed in a holdup. A circus train carrying the mummy on its way to San Diego wrecked and killed eight people. At one point, the mummy's stolen and held for ransom. Another time, union veterans are threatening to steal it because they want to lynch it a second time. Um, (laughs) So... Evans, the Carnival King, he's not having a good time with this corpse. He, he tries to exhibit it at his potato farm in Idaho. Come get some potatoes and look at the dead, right. the dead grizzly. This is before McDonald's. They had to do something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A little tourist attraction. Uh, and then when interest dwindles, he takes it on the road, but he tries to show the body in Salt Lake City, and he's ordered out for teaching fake history, and he takes it to Big Spring, Texas, and he's fined for transporting a corpse without a license, and he's had enough. So he sells the mummy to a carnival man named John Harkin and his wife for 5000 The price Ooh, has gone up. Nice. This is 1930, okay. so that was a pretty good investment on right. his part. And Harkin himself, he was a, a sideshow exhibit for many years. He was one of those famed tattooed men. Okay. Anyway, the, the couple is traveling the country in a battered truck that is pulled by a horse. So clearly they're, they're very poor, trying to eke out a living, and this corpse is their lottery ticket. They are investing everything in it. And that makes it a little easier to understand when I tell you that reportedly the couple was so concerned that someone might steal this body, they slept on either side of it at night. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like I said, it was their lottery ticket. Right. So, and at this time, Harkin, he promised a $1,000 reward to anyone who could prove that the mummy wasn't Booth. So in 1931, a group of Chicago doctors are permitted to x-ray it, and they find, here we go, they find a fractured leg. Now remember, Booth broke a leg jumping to the stage from Lincoln's box. They find a broken thumb, and Booth had crushed his thumb in a stage curtain gear early in his career. Oh. And he found a neck scar 
And that was to be oh, expected I was because ask the physician who go. had examined his body said he had operated on his neck. Nice. And they also said that the x-ray showed a corroded signet ring in the mummy's stomach with the initial B. But I don't find any, you know, if I had a mummy and it had that in it, I'd probably cut it out. Yeah. And I didn't see any reports where they cut it out to confirm it. But right. Because it, it was in there. It just had a B on it. It had a B for Booth. A B for Booth. Could have been his brothers. He could have so, swallowed and said, ha ha. Yeah, it was Edwin all along. Edwin. So the, uh, so the Harkins are exhibiting the mummy almost exclusively with a traveling show called the Million Dollar Spectacle. And it is owned by promoter Jay Gould. Now, Gould's spectacle travels throughout the upper Midwest. It features trained elephants, acrobats. They got this high-diving dog act. Actually, if you go to our website, ohiomysteries.com, I linked to a video someone had put on YouTube showing some of the acts in 1949. From that? Not of the Booth Mummy, but of his traveling million-dollar spectacle. All right. So you can get an idea of what people might have seen when they, when they went to, to his show. Right. But for an additional 25-cent admission, you could go into a tent and inspect the grisly remains of the corpse reported to be John Wilkes Booth. And this was, corpse has got to be... I mean, he must have done a fantastic job embalming this thing. It's grisly. The, the picture's on our website. Oh, so okay. go check it out. It is not pleasant to oh. look at. And, or sleep next to. And during this exhibit, they say it's dressed in khaki shorts. It's laid out on an Indian blanket. Khaki uh, shorts. I don't know. All right. I don't think I'd pay 25 cents to see it. But All right. Dressed in old Navy clothes? Some people did, because the, uh, the Harkins do fairly well for a couple years. But the charm of the mummy soon wears off, and it's not making any money anymore. So at this point, the Harkins offer to give Jay Gould the corpse. Now, Gould says, okay, they sign a contract, he gets ownership of the corpse, and in return, he agrees to split any money that the mummy exhibit brings in, as long as the Harkins care to travel with the show and work the exhibit. And the Harkins say, yeah, that's fine with us. All right. Well, apparently, it seems they had a change of heart because somewhere along the road, in the middle of the night, the Harkins abscond with their horsepower truck and this glass-eyed silent partner of theirs. No way! <laughs> they disappear. So, Jay Gould, uh, the promoter who has the contract owning the corpse, he dies at the ripe age of 81 in 1967. Oh, this is a court battle waiting to happen. And it's not. Oh, okay. His estate is divided peacefully among his children, one of whom is living in Barberton, Ohio. So his name was Dr. George Gould. He was a local optometrist. And in 1977, Dr. Gould gives an interview to Ken Nichols. He's a writer at the Akron Beacon Journal, confirming that his family is the owner of the corpse of John Wilkes Booth, wherever it may be. Wherever it may be. Wherever it may be. So, now Gould told the reporter that his father actually knew where the mummy was, and he said he could get it anytime he wanted, but he guessed his father just didn't want it anymore. So he let it be. Um, and then they asked Dr. Gould, you know, do you, would you like it back if we can find it for you? And, and Gould Dr. Gould was like, ah, what would I do with it? And I got to tell you, after you see pictures of the corpse, 
it, this is not a piece of history you want proudly displayed in your home. Or sleeping next to. Or sleeping next <laughs> to you. It doesn't fit in a curio cabinet. It would take up an entire spare room that you could be using for an office. It's not I, one of your Halloween decorations you, out there. Oh, wait a minute. Mm, there you go. Wait you worked at the Beacon Journal. See? Conspiracy solved. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that could be. Okay, so one day a year it could be a real hit. But. Yep. And, you know, I cannot find any evidence that this mummy ever surfaced again. Dr. Gould died in 1982. He had a daughter, Barbara, who married a man named Bozick. And I made a brief attempt on social media to find a Barberton area Bozick that might know some of the family lore, and I struck out. Um, According to the History Channel documentary, the mummy was last seen in the late 1970s, and it is not publicly known where it is today. And to the best of anyone's knowledge, the guy buried in Booth's grave was never exhumed and tested for DNA. And, uh, and as recently as 2015, the Memphis City Magazine tried to find the body, and they actually followed a bunch of leads, and they all led to a dead end, pun intended. Um, and they even contacted Booth's descendants and tried to get permission to get the body exhumed Uh, but they were denied. So we have to leave you disappointed. I guess all of our podcasts are inherently disappointments because they are mysteries, and we we can't tell you how this story ends. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. Thanks for joining us. Remember, if you're listening on a podcast app, hit that subscribe button. If you do that, then all the future episodes will be logged into your podcast library, and you won't have to worry about if you've missed anything. New episodes will always be lined up and ready for you. And if you're on Facebook or Twitter, come follow us. Sometimes you'll get a sneak peek of what's coming next. Or we'll ask you to help decide what mystery we should turn into a story. Also, don't forget to check out our website at ohiomysteries.com. Warning. The photo of the mummy is on there, and it ain't pretty. We've also got some newspaper links, and Paul even found us a video of Gould's Million Dollar Spectacular. Go check it out. Now it's time for our featured musical artist of the week. At the start of this podcast, you heard a clip of Cello by Mr. Carnivore. This indie rock band from Cleveland was founded by brothers Pat and Joe LaGuardia and backed up by assorted musical friends. You can learn more about them at their website, MrCarnivoreEats.com Oh man, I'm going to go there and order some food. That sounds delicious. (laughs) They do note on their website that they are not butchers, so you might be disappointed. All right. They released their first single, Knees, at the beginning of just this year, and that evolved into a full album called Blue Light. Cello is one of the songs on the album, so we're going to leave you with the full version. You can find links to all of our guest artists on our website under the featured music link. So turn up the volume, enjoy some homegrown Ohio talent, and we'll see you next week for another Ohio mystery. Commit to the system. Commit to the system. System to the system.
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements. And I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.